When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Everybody, welcome to Impact Theory. You are here, my friends, because you believe that human potential is nearly limitless, but you know that having potential is not the same as actually doing something with it. So our goal with this show and company is to introduce you to the people and ideas that are gonna help you actually execute on your dreams. All right, today's guest is not only a double board-certified doctor, he plays one on TV, and over an insanely long and illustrious career, he's become one of the most recognizable names in medicine as a whole, and arguably the most recognizable name in the treatment of addiction. The marriage of his medical and media careers began in the 80s when he realized someone needed to be talking about sex, especially to young people, during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Viewing himself as a civil servant using media to reach a broad audience, he served as the host of Loveline for over 30 years, including a four-year run on MTV with co-host Adam Carolla, touching millions of lives in the process. And that is just the tip of a very large iceberg. His positive effect on people is so far-reaching that the inner main belt asteroid number 4536 is named after him. I'm not kidding. This self-identified recovering workaholic has hosted countless TV shows and podcasts, including everything from rehab and celebrity rehab to This Life, The Adam and Dr. Drew Show, Dr. Drew on Call, and about a dozen other shows in between. What continues to make him the go-to guy for nationally syndicated advice is his deep desire to help people and the fact that he's kept his skills razor sharp by maintaining a thriving medical practice. He's been called the Dr. Ruth for Gen X, but given his continued relevance, I think it's fair to say that he's the soothing voice of reason and sexual and medical advice for millennials and Gen Z as well. So please, help me in welcoming the man who debated whether he should become a doctor or an opera singer. The New York Times best-selling author of The Mirror Effect and Cracked, putting broken lives back together again, Dr. Drew Pinsky. Thanks for coming. It is an absolute pleasure. Quite an intro. Of course, what jumps out is the insanely long career. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered how you would take that. (laughs) That's all right. It's all good. You have looked the same, though, for literally your entire career. God bless you. It's real. 
Did you gray early? Like, is yes. that the secret? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, we have triplets. I think you met a couple of them when you were at our house. I didn't meet them, but I've heard about yeah, them. Yeah, and that first year, boom, your hair turned oh, gray. Oh, and, and, oh no, it's, it's funny, <laughs> but it isn't. And, um, and the workaholism. Between the workaholism and the triplets, that, that pretty much did that, it. Yeah. That did it. You said you were getting up at 5 a.m. and, and yeah. struggling to get home at 10 p.m. for yeah, years. for years, years. And, and after years and years and years of doing that, uh, I, I experienced dread at my work. And I thought, oh, this isn't really? good. And this is a long story there. I mean, the, the you know, love line went to five nights a week, and then I had to change my schedule. And that actually was good for me, except I was still out till midnight because of that. So it, it's, it's... I wondered about that when I was watching the show or listening to the show. Cause I, so I moved to L.A. as a transplant when I was 18, discovered K-Rock immediately because that was my kind of music, found love line. Um, and I thought, how do they record this live? And this guy runs a practice. Yeah, it was crazy. It was just don't sleep. That's basically how you do that. That's and and do going out late at night, you know, my kids were in bed. The, mm. the beeper sort of settled down. A beeper in those days. Right. And uh, the pager settled down, and uh, I could just do it. What pushed you enough to want to do that? I mean, that's an insane amount of work. It, it, to to be a workaholic or to do Love Line every night. I mean, because Love Line was Love Line was sort of an outlet. It was like a creative, right. kind of different, fun thing I could do, where I could make a difference without some of the same sweat and liability and mm. misery of running a medical practice. I mean, that, you know, medicine is not fun today. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. How how I remember my peers used to my older peers, like guys my age when I was you know at the age we're talking about, which is like 20, 30 years ago, they were always like, oh, it's not fun anymore. It's not fun anymore. Now it can be miserable. Just trying to help people, so I, I because you have to see so many people, or because the, there's so much paperwork, there's so much, you're so much liability, there's so little reimbursement, there's so much nonsense you have to go through, so much other than just what you want to do is take care of the patient, right? So much other. So well, heal is something that got put on my radar. I know that you're yeah. involved with those guys. How yeah. on earth are they making that work? Like financially, it's like ninety bucks all in or something. Ninety nine dollars all in. You have a doctor. You if you if you called for the doctor right now, they would be here within two hours. We carefully select each of these people. They're all board certified in family practice or pediatrics or medicine. And um, you don't understand how little doctors make in primary care. It costs about $150 an hour to run a practice. You get $38 from Medicare for every 15 minutes. Whoa. That's That's how you... So if you can go and get $100 for 30 minutes in someone's home and give 20% to heal and you get the rest, that's a that's a deal. Wow. You have no infrastructure. You have just your malpractice. I mean, that's a big deal for doctors. Most doctors, the one you see every day, are struggling to make a living. Wow. Well, that's bad. So no, then- I, it's bad or not. Whatever it is, it is. It, it certainly keeps us all in it for the right reason, right. which is to help people. So. All right. So talk to me about that, the concept of living a good life. You said that, yeah. one, I'm utterly fascinated by how into philosophy you are, so feel free to go okay. deep on that here. Um, you're one of the few people that I research that are quoting Aristotle and you know talking about all this stuff. So yeah. One, what made you start thinking about that, and what's the answer? I, I, I'm not sure if I can articulate it in a way that's cohesive, except to say that I, I, there's limits to meaning, meaning making when you're trying to help people in a medical context. Mm. At, at a certain point, you have to get philosophical. Like, why are we doing this? And what's our goal in doing this? And what's our purpose in doing this? I mean, inevitably that comes up. For instance, uh, you know, when you're, 
dealing with the end of life. I mean, what, what you know, what, what is our goal? To make life as long as possible or to give these people a good life? I mean, particularly working with drug addicts, you get very philosophical very fast because you got, you got to start asking yourself, what, what, what are you doing here? What, why are we doing this? Um, but the, we have now begun to think about different kinds of happiness, right? There's, there's pleasure, which is, as bad things go, it's a pretty good, pretty good deal. Right. Uh, you certainly can't have a flourishing life if you're in misery or right. you're in hunger or you're sick. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of well-being in order to live a flourishing life. Uh, and so we now distinguish between pleasure, which is all my heroin addicts get tons of pleasure. Right. They certainly aren't living a flourishing existence, right? Uh, that's sort of how I started thinking about this. I'm like, Jesus Christ, my heroin addicts, they are happy when they get that first hit. They, that's happy. No, that's pleasure. Eudaimonic happiness, turns out, is much better for our bodies and our immune system. Mm. And it's a certain kind of flourishing happiness. Uh, you know, you can conceive of it it's as a nurturing state or as a well-being state or as a state of satisfaction. But when you look at humans in that state, there are certain sort of requisites you have to have in order to achieve that, right? Uh, Aristotle had kind of two versions of what a eudaimonic happiness was. One was a contemplative life, which I actually don't think was his main point. I think his main point was that real happiness, and this is all the literature confirms, is my, certainly my clinical experience bears this out, is about purpose, leading a good life, leading a certain kind of life, engaged life, leading in the, in the world. Right. And how I got into philosophy, when you start talking about in the world, that's a philosopher called Heidegger who starts talking about this, what is being and being in the world. And you, you can go down a huge rabbit hole, but let's stay with, let's stay with happiness. Um, uh, so uh, in order to be able to meaningfully give back to the point where it really feels good, it really is satisfying, mm-hmm. Aristotle said you had to have a couple things. You, know, you had to have, uh, amongst other things, you had to have a certain amount of technical skill. He called that techni. And you had to have a certain amount of experiential learning. Mm. We call that wisdom. He called that phronesis. And in my humble opinion, those two things have been completely left out of teaching people what it is to have a good life. There's a lot of, hey, man, just give back, give back, give back. And and I have lots of friends that have done lots of cool things and are still, like, not feeling it. And the reason they're not feeling it, they didn't go back and do the hard work of developing an individual skill that can allow them to change the trajectory of another human's life. It's, it's the, the interpersonal piece of one-to-one, brain-to-brain right. transmission that really results in magic, in my humble opinion. Uh, that, that's, it, it's, it's humans and humans together, and then us as a large consciousness, whatever that is, that, that really, um, I, I think, is what gives life purpose and, and gives you that satisfaction that I would call eudaimonic happiness. You're on one of the most important things, I think, in the world for people out there right now to understand how to cultivate this, how to cultivate happiness, what happiness means to your point. I think that people are hopelessly vague. They want to change oh, yeah. the world. They want to have impact, but they never take All the good, time. right? All good. But you've you got to really dig in to define your terms. You know, right. what is happiness? And then what is making a difference? What do you really want to do? How do we as individuals figure out that mind-body connection? <sighs> so this, that's my other big thing. Um, I'm sighing because it's such a gigantic topic and there's so many ways into it. Um, let me just say that, 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 that I am in, I'm increasingly thinking that the brain is less the seat of emotion as much as it is a region 
of the of the central nervous system that accesses and expresses emotion mm. uh, or regulates emotion. This is really interesting. Uh, and I, so I'm obsessed with the brain, and you're the first person I've heard say like the people are overlooking at the brain. Okay. I, I'm I'm very deep in in the. Believe me, I'm, I'm, when it comes to person-to-person connection, and I, I'm way into the brain, I'm particularly into the right brain, the right side of the brain, and holistic kinds of, by holistic, I mean integrative, holistic experiences right. of the self and other, and we can talk about that, but, but the brain is embedded. The brain is embedded in a body, and the body is embedded in a interpersonal context, in a social context, in a cultural context, in a socio-historical context. The embeddedness of that brain is what's missing. And the embeddedness, so much. yeah, the embeddedness is what's so interesting because that's why I'm fascinated by person-to-person stuff mm. because brains heal and change other brains phenomenally. But I, I'm increasingly convinced that a large part of that is is body-to-body transmission of some sort of attunement that goes on between and amongst humans. I mean, it's it's something that I'm certain came out of the environment of evolutionary adaptedness and would probably our hunting or our, before we had language, our ability to sort of move as a group and, mm. and, and uh, you know, forms cohesive units that could survive. That's still in us. And there's a guy named Stephen Porges, who I, you might want to interview someday, he's a great guy. And he, he has really located a lot of this connection in the vagus nerve. And when I was uh, in medical school, we just learned that the vagus nerve was something that slowed the heart down. And that, that's it. And maybe messed with the stomach acid secretion a little bit. And that's it. Turns out 70-80% of the vagus nerve is afferent, meaning coming up out of the body. And oh, by the way, we have these three giant knots of nerves of the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. They're almost like peripheral brains in our, in our pelvis, our abdomen, and our, in our chest. That that nerve is bringing tons of information back and also sending information back down, a myelinated and an unmyelinated, early developing, late developing. And it turns out, just like we have a homunculus for our motor and sensory system in the cortex, mm. you have a little homunculus in the brainstem that's the nucleus that receives all the afferent information from the vagus nerve. By homunculus, I mean a, a sort of a map of the body that's the body's autonomic or sort of visceral kinds of experiences. And I think that may be the seat of emotion myself. Humbly. In the brainstem? In the brainstem. Because then we don't even know what the hell the periaqueductal gray matter does. But this, Never this heard those words put together. Oh, no. That's, a very, that's, where, brain, that's where pain is modulated. But, but right near the periaqueductal gray at the level of the pons is this uh, nucleus tractus solitaris, which takes this, all this visceral information and sends it to the amygdala and the insular cortex. Mm. And I'm fighting a lot in people with trauma and over something going wrong. I, I don't want to use... When you use absolute terms of the brain, it's never the right mm. term. But there's something going on in the insular cortex in patients that have been traumatized. They don't regulate their bodily-based experiences coming out of their body, and they're all felt as painful, misery, uh, uh, sort of the affective charge of everything is overwhelming. And guess how you change that? Other bodies in proximity. Yeah, talk to me about that. The, one of the notes that I took researching you was every, it was like everything is about the other. I mean, it was, it was a very big statement about how much other people impact you. Yeah. Uh, so is that something you've learned through the addiction working uh, with it's, addicts? It's or? being the object as a patient. I did therapy for many, many, many years and through working with patients. Um, but then it also, you know, I've done lots and lots of reading about, about you know, ideas about these things. And you've you got to think about it this way. Where does yourself emerge? How, do you, how, do you, how does a self develop? How does that happen? You really want me to answer? Yeah. 
Uh, so from, 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 from its inception, yeah. How does it happen? I'm going to give you a really bad answer, and this yeah. is why I love doing the show because you've you've planted a seed now that is, I think, going to fundamentally shift the way that I think about this. Prior to researching you, here's how I thought about it. Um, certainly, the genetics plays a okay, role. Sure. Certainly, for early sure. environment plays a huge role. Attachment style of the okay. mother. Okay. So, so what about that early environment? What, what, what? Where? I mean. I'm going to jump to this chase. The the, the first thing, we know for sure, the first thing the child is able to do is... You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to 
make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Focus okay. externally, and it tends to be focused on partially contingent phenomenologies. So things like pushing a mobile, pulling the cat's tail, but we have giant areas of our brain dedicated to the face, right? The fusiform gyrus, we, we look at faces, we can, we can analyze micro movements of our, of our musculature in our face, and we, that happens early. So the first thing we're doing is mother comes into focus and it's in the relationship with mom and dad that the self, the experiences of the self emerge. It's first other. Mm. That's the first thing. And then these spontaneous whatever we're having, you know, these bodily-based spontaneous experiences we call emotions that kind of wash over us when we're little, mom is focusing on us and what the research shows reflects on her face through micro-movements of her face and appreciation of our bodily-based experiences. Mm. And we learn that that's our experience. Yes, that's me. I'm seeing it reflected on your face. And not only that, mom offers soothing affects alongside of those identified second-order representations. She allows, attunes to us, and gives us the interpersonal capacity for regulation. Right. So those feelings, even when we're a baby, just wash over us. It's that attunement of the other body. I mean, literally, the hippus of the pupils of mom and child start start moving together. Pupillary hippos. And our our heart rates go the same and our blood pressures t- team up. I mean that's that's just what happens. How the hell in does proximity. blood pressure team like I can sort of get a heartbeat because yeah. it's like there's something really happening. Yeah. But it, blood it, pressure? I mean that's it, constriction it, it, of I, it's essentially I, I don't know that that's I can tell you for certain that there's exact blood pressure because you know adult and children are very very different. But but it's to say that the physiology internal physiological right. milieu matches. That's so weird. It starts it's like women getting their periods in sync and everything. It's so weird. Weird. That's not this part of the, our our, right. our nervous system. That's this part, right? And we ignored it. We largely ignore it. Mm. Now you asked me how do you get the mind body connection? Yeah. And before you answer that, is this part of why you started working out? So I've always found that fascinating about you. No, I think I have a little body dysmorphia and that kind of stuff. Okay, well that's, that's honest. That's <laughs> usual reasons. And 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 I and now it's become my meditation. Now I I can't I get uncomfortable when I don't do it. I listen right. to lectures and I listen to programs like this and mm. um, uh, and and now I'm fighting the clock. <laughs> I'm fighting aging too, and yeah. so I'm so I'm, I'm I'm happy that I have that compulsion. So going back to your question about how the self emerges yeah. is maybe less interesting to me than how do you take control of the self 
as an adult who's self-aware that has things like mindfulness and mind-body connection and all that to be able to sculpt and change your vision of yourself, which then I believe, when, now I'll talk about that in, in terms of identity and then how identity drives behavior. And my whole thing to people okay. is if you want to change your behavior, change your identity. Okay. Which I, I, I believe as an adult you can do. I agree. I don't disagree with any of that. So that's like the angle that I'm coming at this from. Like how do we... How do we begin to construct our sense of self in a, in a directed, meaningful way through things like the mind-body connection? Yeah. Um, a couple things occur to me. One is, you know, we have a sort of a saying in recovery. It's, you know, lead a certain kind of life. Mm. Start being rigorously honest. Start being helpful. Start doing things, you, you know, contrary, you know, whatever your idea is, do the contrary, these sorts of things. And guess what? When you start behaving a certain way, you'll start feeling a different way. And you'll start thinking of yourself in a different way. And you'll start internalizing some of these things. So one of the things is behavior, right? Start, start really looking at your behavior and start, you can, you can make choices about your behavior. That, that's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It, you know, th- that's the other thing that people don't understand. Change is really hard. Change is like, oh yeah, just get inspired and change. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, there are fields of study looking at change. And change has a you know, pre-contemplative, contemplative execution, and maintenance. The maintenance mm. of change is what most people leave out. And most people are not able to maintain change. Even, even something simple, like stopping cigarettes, exercise more, get your diet, mm. take these pills every day. I can't get somebody to take pills every day. Have you I mean, read the book, Change or Die? Well, I've not read the book, but I will, I will tell you that I've gotten fascinated. There are moments of change. People that really change usually have a moment. They can tell you the moment mm. they change. Sometimes it feels like that's where it's sort of a spiritual piece fits into this. People feel like something stepped in from the outside and made them change or, or opened them to the possibility of change. I've looked at this a little bit, and what I have found is in every case I've looked at, I find these people... And obviously, I've seen a lot of addicts that, for, first of all, if they feel they're going to die. If they believe they're going to die, they're like, okay, what do I need to do? They, Is that pretty universal? Drug addicts, for sure. I, I can't universalize it, but drug addicts, for sure, when they, when they really, sometimes they have near-death experiences that don't believe they're going to die. Right. But when they believe they're going to die, they change. But th- that doesn't interest me. That, that's an easy one. The one that interests me is the following. When people all of a sudden go, oh, my God, uh, and they change. What I found with those people is they usually were hanging around with somebody, having an intimate sort of conversation and time with somebody who was sort of different than what they would normally hang with. And so from, from my perspective, it's literally they're, they're using the other mm-hmm. to see themselves through a new pair of glasses. Like they're experiencing themselves differently. Because normally we are attracted to people that sort of fit our models of what we like and what's, you know, how our attachments work and whatever our traumatic reenactments are, we, we, just, we just go for that. That's what we do as humans. Not enough is made of how fucked up attractions are. I mean, attractions, attraction, what we're attracted to, usually comes from, often comes from a not-so-great place mm-hmm. in, in our childhood. I definitely uh, want to talk about that, but okay. I want to finish <laughs> okay. this. These people I found were usually sort of hanging out with somebody and spending time and time and time, and all of a sudden... They actually didn't make the connection with the hanging out with a different person. I'd, I'd start asking them about it. I usually would find that there. But all of a sudden, they would see themselves. All of a sudden. Like one woman was hugely obese, and she was walking by. So she told me the exact window she was walking by. I think it was in Pasadena at a Macy's, and there was a mirror. And she walked by, and she said, huh, I saw myself. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm disgusting. i got to change. Wow. Disgust is the motivator. I have another patient who was... <laughs> She was a nurse. She was in denial. I've been trying for years to get her sober, and she was in an IVs and in hospitals and getting surgery. I needed to get the opiates, right? 
And she said one day she would walk into the hospital bathroom with her IV and looked in the mirror and saw herself. In that moment, so like it broke through all the dial. But they so we started this by saying it's the other, but that's two stories of people seeing in the mirror. What is it about that they, externalization? They, no, 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 no. They were able to see themselves differently because they had been hanging out with somebody I see, different. I see. I they were see. seeing was, themselves. So, what was in those relationships? Do you think that just a different fittedness, a different, a new pair of glasses? Mm-hmm. The way I think of it, like somebody not Newton, a novel perception of who they were, not the usual patterns that they engaged. So, in. let me say this another way, just to make sure I understand it. Yeah. So, hanging out with somebody new is literally like you're syncing up in a way that's now causing novel. you to, to right. see yourself differently or experience wow. yourself differently, and then we know that happens. That's what therapy. That's what, mm. Therapy is taking you into a new relationship, a new kind of relationship. And each little step in that therapy, you experience yourself sort of differently in that context. Do you buy into the notion that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with? I don't know. <laughs> I, I would more argue that you would choose to spend time around those five people because of some pre-existing mm. pattern. And we have maps in our brain. We have maps and patterns and things that we... We tend to go, we tend to reenact. All right, so talk about that with the attraction. Why so, is... So again, I get to see extreme examples of that. But, but anyway, these people, when they, when they see themselves as they are, mm-hmm. they feel disgust, and disgust is a powerful motivator. Disgust is something that sustains. Then, then they change. They lose the weight. They do. Have you ever noticed when you're in a diet, when you finally get disgusted with yourself, you're like, oh, yes. all of a sudden I can diet better. Can we, can we so, just burn the comments so, down and, and talk about self-loathing for a second? Well, self-loathing is different. Than disgust. I think it's different. Really? Yeah. Me, you're is, so good at defining terms, like I'm, I'm scared to challenge you, but like, tell me well, how Well, self-loathing they're... is closer to hate, right? And disgust, Ooh, disgust is a very primitive, yes. it's yes. a yucky feeling. Okay. Hate doesn't motivate the way disgust You don't think. Is. Well, it doesn't, hate, hate gets, again, I'm following my thinking here, mm. hate gets connected to shame. I'm bad. Okay. And shame is a is a deflating emotion. It, it takes you down. It, it's not. It's not a, a, a this. Uh, um, wow, this is interesting. I, I'm gonna die, and I'm disgusting. It's like I fucking gotta change. This. I gotta do right. something about this. But I'm bad. Why would you change? I'm already bad. I'm shameful. I'm, I want to be not seen. You want to shrink with shame. It's interesting. I guess because I don't think of. Uh, I think of humans as so malleable, and that your past is not necessary to defining who you can become. That now, admittedly, that's sort of my own belief system. So, but I get what you're saying now about disgust. And that is incredibly, incredibly well, powerful. And when you said, by the way, that the woman walked by the mirror and, and said, I'm disgusting, yeah. I like literally internally cringed. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're not like caveating that story. Like, no, it's okay to be overweight. Like, no, no, she was, she, I, I gotta do something. I'm changing. You talked about addiction and said, you know, one of the number one questions that I get asked is if there's a genetic component to yeah. this, yeah. then there must be some conferred advantage. Oh, yeah. Your explanation of that was so breathtaking. Right, there had to be, right? I mean, this, this is a gene that's been persistent in the genome. Through, essentially throughout human history. Right. So there's got to be some adaptive advantage to it. And when you look at people with addictions, why I have zero moral feelings about addiction. Addiction makes people do some morally reprehensible things, but the, the use of the substance and the disease is not moral. In fact, these people are extraordinary. They make great fighter pilots. They make great extreme athletes. They make great shortstops. They are, they're phenomenal survivors in extreme adversity. Mm. So doesn't it make sense that in isolated populations that are that are distressed, like they're assaulted for multiple generations, that would be the population that survives? Well, that's what we find. If you look on the globe where there's the highest sort of concentration of alcoholism and it's the most intense genetically, Scotland, Ireland, North American Indian, isolated populations, military genocidal assaults typically, survivors, alcoholics. 
That is fascinating. Is there a similar um, evolutionary glimpse into why we try to recreate or why we do recreate these oh, yeah. attractions to, to the past? Yeah, I, I I think it might have some sort of. I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think it has some sort of offload memory function. In other words, like why do Jew, people of Jewish heritage practice Passover every year? Mm. Why do they do that? I, I believe that ritual is an offloaded traumatic memory. Mm. So they do the, like if, they, if we were going to remember the, the blood of the lamb and the Passover and all this stuff, no way you'd remember that. Generation after generation, it would, get, right. it would get telephoned into God knows what, right? It would turn into some myth and something about a dragon. <laughs> Who the hell knows? But when we do the same behavior every year and we mm. eat the same things the way they did, they went through this, we're experiencing the same thing. Every year, we do it as a ritual. That's an offloaded traumatic memory. Mm. And, I, and I think repetition compulsion is a similar thing. Some, some, but you would think it's, it's kind of gone bad in some way. In other words, we're repeating a trauma that we should be avoiding. And somehow it's... A, it's and maybe, maybe the people that are repeating traumatic experiences are sort of the canary in the coal mine for everybody else. Hmm. Possibly. I think what we're ultimately going to find is that whatever that mechanism is, is probably the same mechanism that allows for intense, deep emotional attachments... In, in a healthy way that just go, gets sick, just goes off. So here's one thing that I found interesting about people who are highly dramatic. Yeah. I get enough glimpse of it in myself to sort of know what that looks like where merely having a strong emotion in any direction, there's an intoxication to that. There's a sense of... You get high. You're, yeah, you're heightened, like yeah. you're alive. So even though it's bad, it's at least elevated. Yes. Um, that's a complex landscape. Um, some people do get high from it. Uh, uh, my addicts get high from drama, for sure. In their early recovery, they are the most dramatic people on earth. <laughs> they are dramatic as hell. And they love creating drama and conflict because right. they get off on They get high on it. I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot now about exactly what you're asking about the evolution of the self. How do we take control of the self? And, right. and um, uh, you know, the, the human gathering thing I did that you mm. probably saw, yeah. um, Wes Chapman has this little theory that I, I really got under my skin that that we that there's so much victim in our culture that if we could flip it into a hero archetype, right. we would help people mobilize exactly what you're talking about. And there's something about that. There's something happening. I, I almost believe that I, I was never Jungian. I never found any use for that. But all of a sudden, I started thinking, you know, this country had sort of a hero archetype until the 60s, then it became the anti-hero and the anti-social. Right. And we're still in that kind of mode and it's resulted in a bunch of victims and we need to mobilize hero, magician or something, something a little more substantial in people again as, as our sort of myth. We, we need myth because myth attach, attaches us back to right. the bodily-based holistic experience that our rational brain, just the way mom, I was thinking about it this way, just the way mom can reflect back with her face emotional experiences that defy words. It's a much more, it's communicating to a different part of the brain. Right. I have a feeling myth communicates a holistic, inter, social sort of connectedness that we can't get any other way. Does that, that fit your understanding? My friend, do you know why we founded Impact Theory? No, no, tell me. Literally, because of that. So I read the book, The Power of Myth, by Joseph Campbell, and he talked about how, hey, you want to know what happens to a society when they no longer believe in the mythology? Because for millennia, you told these stories, rites of passage, all of that, and you actually believed that they were real. Yeah. So now what happens when ritual is robbed of its power? Mythology is a story. It's just entertainment. It doesn't connote anything anymore that you're supposed to take into your life to connect bodily, which I've never thought of it that way. But 
for me, it's about the creation of identity. Literally, I promise you, I did not set this up. This is not why you came on the show. I had no idea that you thought like no, that. No, well, but what so, I find fascinating is we're all going to that same place. We're all trying to help people, and we're all going, something's missing here. Dude, you just pure, gave me the chills. Pure, me too. Pure rationality is great, but pure rationality, absent everything else, not good. This is this. So I believe as an entrepreneur, you have to ask the question, no bullshit, what would it take? Okay, so when we- That's a rational question. Right? So when we started Quest, it was no bullshit, what would it take to help people be happy? Okay, that was my question. When they have a negative self body image, right? So the woman walks by the mirror and she feels disgusting. How do you help her with that? Because she actually turns back to ice cream most of the time. Yeah. Because for a moment it cheers her up, it's like a drug, and she just gets in a really bad cycle. So- Yeah, she she looks in the mirror usually and feels bad. This right. is, I don't feel bad. I feel disgusting. Right. And I got to get away from that. You have to get disgust something you have to get away from. You have to move away from disgust. Now imagine. You would go to Quest. Right. That's <laughs> certainly the hope. Imagine that a drug addict, hey, the cure for your addiction is to do heroin. All the things about it, and finally you're thriving at the end of it. That was literally the idea behind Quest. People could choose food that they, or they were choosing food yeah. based on taste, yeah. but we had done the hard work of making it good for you. Yeah. So with impact theory, I, I already know, So because my whole thing is leverage behavior, don't try to change it. I already know people are going to read books, read comic books, watch movies, watch TV shows, and play video games. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. I also know that the way that humans assimilate truly disruptive information is through narrative mythology, passing this I, stuff I, on. I agree with you. I would not have agreed with you six months ago. That's but I agree. You had said something to me when I was at on your show where you said, oh, I'm actually working on scripted stuff. Is that yes. why? Yes. It, it, it has ended up why. It wasn't why I started. I was just sort of fascinated by mm. it. I always like to try new and different things. And then once I got into it, I'm like, holy shit, this is where I need to be. I need to cultivate this. Because yeah. this is what gets through to people. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. But, I'm, but I don't feel, I don't know if you feel like you're there with it. I'm not there with it yet. With the concept or the ability to execute? The, the there of it. Because I believe, like with everything holistic, it's co-created. Mm. See, I think we all create things. You know, here we are co-creating this thing. You're, right. you're, you're, you're pushing me forward in new and different ways, and you're changing my brain as you say these things, right? right? I think, I think it's we gotta like get a little army together, and that army's gonna create something new and different in its own myth or right. whatever. Yeah, totally. And, and I, you know, and I want to be humbled and in awe of it, and you know, that that's where I need to be. I, why, why should I create them? You know, right. create a myth. The, but I don't want to be that. I want it to be something that speaks to the circumstance, the, the history, the time. You ready? I can tell you how to do it. Please. This is literally what we're doing. Okay. So we're li- I am the following facts make me question whether or not we're actually living in the matrix, which I don't believe, by the way. But every now and then, so many things line up that it just, oh, it's too perfect. It's the sort of Goldilocks moment. So, like, like this we're having right now. Right, exactly. Well, I just, think, I just think we're all in this together. We're more connected than we know. More connected than we know. Yeah. Technology is yeah. moving in a direction where we can connect more. And yeah. I think yeah. you have ambivalent feelings about social media. Um, I, I, I don't, yes. <laughs> I don't think it's purely bad. Right. I think it needs to be um, dealt with with care, and it does get in the way of some of the stuff I've been talking about. It can do some, yeah, it, can, it can't replace it, but it can add to it. Yes, yeah. perfect. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Yeah. So the way I think the modern myths are going to be created, one, we have to accept that people know that there are stories, but if there are stories that we reach out, so build an army of people around ideology. That's why I do the show. It gives me a chance to bring on people who I think think in phenomenal ways. They can watch me changing in real time. They can hear my worldview and what it's built around and all that and watch it change, but ultimately, Ultimately, it's around 
empowerment, whether that's freeing yourself from past traumas, whether that's just understanding um, neuroplasticity and myelination and all of that, like bringing it all together. And then going out to them and saying, hey, within this universe that we have created, dear community, submit ideas around these things. So here are stories that we're trying to tell, but we want you to bring us the the specific storylines, the mythology around that, if you will. And that way, then you have the crowd say, these are the ones that we care about. Because I'm never gonna guess accurately. No, no, not only that, but I feel like my mythological landscape, whatever we ultimately decide what that is, is a little impoverished. And I like it to be nourished. Mm-hmm. And that's gonna come from others, others, sure. others. I wanna get, so let's talk more about the others. Um, your concept of being embedded, that like, you wanna talk about changing my brain in real time, that is one of those immediately true lightning rod moments. How do we leverage other people to make change in our own life consciously? So I'll give you an idea. I'm now going to stalk the shit out of you. I'm going to spend more time with you. It is just the way that it has to be because of the way that you think. Yeah. And I just want to be well, around that's, that. Well, that's, that's the way you do it. I think that's the way is one brain at a time. I mean, that's one way of doing it. Right. Um, I think information and media. I think media is tremendously impactful. That's why I do it. I think that this is this is part of the deal here. Mm. Um, I'm just deeply fascinated by the human experience. Talk to me about that. Define the human experience. What do you mean by that? Anything to do with the human. Whether it's how your, how your intestine functions or how the founding fathers wrote the Constitution. Okay, it, those are all that's, that's a span. All fascinating. Why? I don't know. I, I love people, I guess. I just love them. That's interesting. Uh, walk me through that. Because I have no so, interest in geology. I have no interest in some interest in trees because it informs about us. <laughs> it's not a that's narcissism. That's different than being fascinated. It's, it's, yeah, it's not a narcissism. It's literally a oh, uh, uh, oh. It's a, I don't know. It's I. Uh, it's something. But I'm you were you always that way? I suspect, but I wouldn't not I would not have identified. I, something about my medical training got me all the way in. Yeah. So okay, walk us through that because this is still astonishing. And okay, I'm just gonna ask: Would you sing for us? Like even just like a couple notes. I literally I can't an opera singer. At first <laughs> when you first said experience. it, I was like, music is part of the human experience. What uh, massively? Okay, what am I gonna sing? Vanne l'altrometà javedo ti spinge il tuo dimone e trimonzonio. That is incredible. Thank you for that. And I debated whether to actually ask you to do that or not. And please, like, it's the only I can fucking, sing without, that's not the only I can sing without a piano. <laughs> just, because in the opera, he's sort of just—I think it's Iago, if I remember right. So I'm talking about that is crazy. So you you have this moment where you're debating whether to go into medicine like your dad, and it was sort of assumed that that's what you do. But you, yeah, um, like, how do you find your path through that? How did you do it? Uh, it wasn't easy <laughs> because you know the the tasks were so humongous and the expectations on me were high. And stuff. the tasks of becoming a doctor, and it looked too much for me. I, I just mm. p- part of it was I'll tell you what. In, in retrospect, a big part of it was just the male brain. I swear to Christ, my, I was just not ready to do it. I, I was so my I, my first year medic of college, I was in you know big high powered Ivy League ish sort of environment and getting my ass handed to me, but, but doing well, you know? And I, at the end of that first semester, I was like, well, this is not worth it. Mm. I am miserable. I gotta get away from this. Even though I did fine, 
it was like, screw this. I, I, this, this isn't mine. I didn't, mm. you know, I didn't want to do this. Everybody wanted me to do it. So that's when I just went and just started doing other things. I left school for a while, and I was more miserable, but different miserable. I was depressed and because lost. Because you didn't have a purpose, you know where you were I needed going. structure, yeah, no purpose, no structure. I, I need all that. I, I like all that. I didn't know it at the time, but, but I, I know it now. And, um, and when I started thinking, when I allowed myself, which is another like a year and a half later, I started thinking, oh, maybe that medicine thing, maybe that would be something to think about. Just the thought relieved my depression. Hmm. Just, the, just, 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 just letting it cross my mind huh? that maybe I could do that. I, I was like, oh, that, that feels way better. It's like, stop fighting, stop fighting it. And now I went back, and now it was like two years later, I'm like 19, 20. I was 17 when I went to college, I was, I was young. And I was like, oh, I can do this. I can, I, not only do I want to do it, I, I can do it. And, not, and I had to do a lot of it because now I was behind the eight ball. Right. I was now a, a, a junior. And I'd only done one semester of my pre-med stuff. I had to get my crap together. And uh, I did it. And then when I got to medical school, I was elated all the time. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. So talk to me about some of the things that you've experienced. You said listening to addicts, you'll sometimes even hear things. Yeah, oh, I hear things, feel things, all kinds of things. So I, I literally will go like, you know, I'm feeling like my, my back suddenly hurts right here. And is that, I, I don't normally feel pain there. And the patient will go, oh, well, that's where dad used to kick me when I was like, what? And, and what's weird about it, whenever you're in a close connection, they'll always say it, matter of fact, like, of course, that's where dad kicked me. Anyway, so as I was saying, they'll just go right on. Like, like not like, how did you know? They never say that. It's so weird because you're in it together. You're in it. How do you and, explain that as a man yeah, of I, science? I, I, and I've seen you be very careful with answers. Yeah. There is a, a guy named Alan Shore. Mm-hmm. Another guy you should interview if you can. He has worked out a lot of the what's called right brain to right brain holistic interaction between and amongst people. That that there is a there is a holism of our experience of emotional attunement with another that we're not experiencing consciously minute to minute. And we're sending tons of information back and forth. Is it merely some sort of state thing or is it pheromones or is it tiny micro movements of my face? Or I, I don't know what it is. But I know it's I know it's back in the myth zone. Mm. You know, it's it's in the holistic, subconscious, back with that you know, Vegas embedded sort right. of something. Maybe it's these three things. These are like little brains. Maybe these brains are doing something that we just don't haven't figured out yet, mm. right? I mean, why not? They're gigantic nervous people. It's what it's the what certain philosophies call the chakras. But they're actually gigantic. And people say, what do, you, what do you say when you've been emotionally hurt? My, right. my, my heart hurts. And you know what? Yeah. Turns out your vagus is feeling what's going on in your heart. And there are all these hormones and, and emotional. You know, your heart does hurt. Right. That's what's happening. We think of, we've been always thinking, oh, it's just the brain reflecting something. I, I don't think so. I think your heart hurts. And I think you're experiencing something out of your body. And, and maybe this heart-to-heart, I'm feeling something right now from you just as I sit here. It feels more open. You feeling that? Right? I, yeah, but I just did. sitting here with you talking about my heart, yeah. I feel like that has meaning to you. I don't know why I think that, sure. but that's the kind of stuff that, that comes out of me when right. I'm sitting in close contact with somebody else. Wow. And that's, I can always trust that stuff because I don't know what it is, I don't know where it comes from, but I know it has meaning. Wow. How many addicts have you, or anybody for that matter, have you sat with like really in an intense get locked in kind of way? Well, uh, thousands. Um, and, and, and I, because I believed my job 
was to model closeness. Addicts are disconnected. They're disconnected from the self. They're disconnected. From, they don't trust anything. And and I always thought amongst getting them medically situated and into the program and blah blah blah, I always thought that one of my jobs was to show them that they can tolerate closeness, because then they could go do that with a a peer in recovery. We call that a sponsor. And and that's that was to me that was always the essential ingredient to getting them well. If they didn't have a sponsor, they just no chance. Right. We didn't even talk about happiness. I know. In fact, I, we just can't wrap without talking about it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, happiness. Uh, I think people. I think they got the word wrong. I think. I think they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I think people measure happiness. They're measuring sort of some subjective experience that sort of everyone has a modicum above. We our brains naturally put us into sort of a median state. Like that. They've all, they keep showing that every time. Somebody has a horrific experience, they're quadriplegic or something, their happiness, their subjective happiness scale returns essentially to normal, mm. most people. Or if they win the lottery, their happiness scale returns to normal. I don't think they're asking about the right thing. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think happiness is more about leading a certain kind of life, uh, and we have to really think about what that means. And leading a good life may not be, feel good. That's, really? May not. That's did, did Jesus lead a good life? Did Socrates lead a good life? Sure. But would you Feel say, so though, that... most of the time. Do you think, though, or was I wouldn't want to live those. That wouldn't be my good life. Right. That wouldn't be my good life, but... but That wouldn't be your good life, or it wouldn't be your pleasurable life? Neither, for me. I, I, know, I wouldn't okay. want that. I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate that. It's too much for me. I'm not up to that. Right. That, that, that's, I mean, I can't even aspire to it, to that kind of stuff. But, but I do think I could lead a life that would be eudaimonic for me, that would be flourishing for me, that's... Because I sort of have that part because I, I have all these great, wonderful skills I've been, I've been trained in. And so I always have something to offer. You know, my, my, more, my thing is I'm more worrying about money to hand over to my kids and support them in graduate school. And so that, that's where my stresses lie in terms of finding meaning and being able to make a difference. I, I always can go do it. I, I got something to offer all the time. And that's sort of where my good life is, is like I, I feel fortunate in being able to this, what we're doing here, is sort of beyond for me. Like, this is like, oh, this is beyond the good life. This is something I didn't even expect, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. So there were two things in that that you said earlier. So technique, which you just talked about. and Skill. Phronesis. Phronesis. Wisdom. So this is the part that, that most of the millennials are missing right now. Got a bunch of millennial interns. So, so you guys have all this information, all this stuff, you know, but you don't have any experience. And experiential learning, to me, that's the most important part of my learning. Mm. Uh, you know, applied knowledge, experiential, you know, clinical experience, experiences with other people and stuff. That's where, you know, that's where your mind really, it's a different wiring. It's a different wiring. And so, you know, they've always got their Google, and they have unlimited information. They do know a lot. They know a lot, but they have tons of knowledge, but very little wisdom, very little experience. And uh, that is necessary for the good life. Phronesis is necessary. And then technique again, isn't really information, isn't knowledge. It's, a, again, a, a, some sort of skill set that you, can, that you can then apply, that you can bring for other people. I mean, think about every great myth, whether it's Candide, right? How's Candide end? Il faut, il faut cultiver nos jardins. It's just take care of our garden, take care of ourselves, take care of our family, take care of our community. Gilgamesh, the oldest myth in, in existence, after all his things with Enkidu and his crazy trips and, and adventures, Go back and serve my community. That really, all, pretty much all great myths sort of end with that. Mm. Like that's really where the meaning lies. You got to do all these things. You got to have your life chorus, and you got to identify with certain archetypes. But ultimately, 
go back to your community, make a difference. I love that. What do you? What advice do you have for people that want to get more technique, more phronesis? Go to school, <laughs> learn. I, I would. I think it takes. It takes a long time. I mean, think about it. You may already have it. Maybe somebody you have these skills, or maybe you have skills you haven't thought about how you could apply them in ways that could make a difference. But and most of us do. So maybe that's part of it. Is to think about using your skills in new and different ways. But don't be afraid to go back. I, friend, I, I'm, I was thinking about a guy the other day who was very successful in business and he was still had that feeling like I, need to, I didn't make a difference. He went back to nursing school. And you know what? It's fantastic. Wow. It's fantastic. He now always has something to offer. He always has something he knows he can do for people. For that person, in that moment, he can make a difference. He has a ton of skills. Wow. You don't think about that. And that's, that to me was like, that. he's got it. That was it. And is there anything in your life that you're trying to add now to round out your good? I mean, from the outside, it looks seems like you live an amazing life of giving to people and helping. And uh, I feel re- super grateful. I think gratitude is the number one sign that you're happy. I, I think people, you know, people ask me, "How do you know if you're happy?" I go, "I think I, if I feel gratitude two or three times a day, I'm I'm in. I know I'm in the right. I'm where I need to be." Wow, I love that. All right, <laughs> so, where can these guys find you online? Just go to, please go to drdrew.com. I got a bunch of, my wife, you very kindly came on the podcast, she does This Life and uh, Weekly Infusion. These are fun podcasts. One I do with Bob Forrest, the guy with the hat and the glasses from Celebrity Rehab. And um, also with, uh, if you're anybody or Corolla fans, you want to come on the Corolla podcast. And, and that's heartbeat. a whole other interesting person. <laughs> um, and uh, Adam and I do a podcast every day. It's all, it's all at drdrew.com. But uh, Dr. Spaz, Dr. Bruce and I do a podcast there. If, you, if you're any Corolla fans are in the mix here, they will know him as Dr. Spaz. Yes. And we actually do really interesting. We, we take very, um, I guess we call them sort of on-the-margin medical topics and really make them come to life. Very, very interesting stuff. Like a guy that you know, was blind his whole life and suddenly gets his vision back. Mm. And what is the neurobiological experience yes. of seeing? And you'd be amazed that, that he just experiences visual input as just a bunch of sensory information he can't make sense of. Wow. He literally one day mistook a, a large woman in a Costco for a forklift. <laughs> And he just couldn't quite, he couldn't process the, because right. your brain is, your brain is making sense of all this mm. light. Your, your, your brain is doing that. And if you haven't built that machinery, it's almost like trying to learn a language. You can't right. quite do it. Isn't that interesting? Very, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. All right, last question. All right, all right. What is the impact you want to have on the world? I, I've always said that if on my tombstone it said he made a difference, that, that I'd be just, I'd be grateful, be happy, I'd be fine. I don't know what the difference is. I don't know what difference I have to make. That's kind of not up to me. You know what I mean? Uh, um, it's not up to me. I just would be happy if I made a difference. And of course, a, not a negative difference, a positive right. difference. So. Awesome. Dr. Drew, thank you thank so you, much really for coming fun. on the show. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely. Guys, this is somebody who I really am not sure that I've ever had as much fun researching someone as I've had researching him. You guys know me. I'm always trying to get people out of their loop, but before you can get them out of it, you have to define it. And trying to define this man's loop truly proved impossible because he has an entire, like all these separate universes. It's a moving target too. It's changing every day. I got news for you. Yes. It changes today sitting here.
And so. I love that. And I think that you guys will really, really enjoy that. I went on his podcast. It was a lot of fun. He thinks deeply about a lot of topics, is very open-minded. Like he said, it's always changing because he's willing to go in and be changed by the information. I cannot encourage you guys enough to dive deeply into his world. Listen to his podcast. They are incredible. They are educating. They are eye-opening. And I think he's had an influence on multiple generations. And for that, I will truly be eternally grateful. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Impact Theory. If this content is adding value to your life, our one ask is that you go to iTunes and Stitcher and rate and review. Not only does that help us build this community, which at the end of the day is all we care about, but it also helps us get even more amazing guests on here to share their knowledge with all of us. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this community. And until next time, be legendary, my friends. Be legendary.